Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk, actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to a special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion today is not tied to the offer of selling investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of us from your affiliates. We have a really interesting show today, special edition. We had a Japan election over the weekend, and we have two guests to talk about it. First, we're going to talk with Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Trees Japan office. The second part of the program, we're going to talk with a currency expert, Brad Bechtel of Jefferies. Jesper, whenever we talk Japan, you know you're my favorite person I call up. Thanks for joining us on our special edition of our podcast today. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. So sort of interesting reactions. The markets like the election outcome. Maybe you could talk through, you know, Abe was having, you know, the narrative was he was having declining popularity. He was getting up and coming rival challenged by uh, a new party. But he pretty much won hands down, it seems like. Uh, maybe just give us your reflections of what happened, what's been the course of what's been happening with Abe uh, and what this new election means. Yeah, I mean, very interesting. Uh, Japan is not... Germany is not England. Uh, You know, Prime Minister Abe did do a gamble. Um, You know, it was his election. He called the election. And, uh, you know, the result is he got a resounding, uh, you know, endorsement from the Japanese people. You've seen the results. Basically, uh, Prime Minister Abe is back with ruling Japan with a two-thirds supermajority So it's very, very stable government. And, uh, you know, the emphasis on consistency, continuity, particularly on economic policy, that's obviously what Prime Minister Abe and his team feels very strong about. And you're going to see that, um, you know, with the fact that the cabinet is likely to stay rock solid, so no personal changes, the stimulus on the fiscal side and the stimulus on the monetary side is going to continue here in Japan. Yeah. Now, so the the stimulus on the fiscal side, um, I know one of the issues that was was being called for uh, in the challenger, um, I, may, I may get her name pronounced right, Koiki, was 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 against the consumption tax um, that's supposedly scheduled for for next year. Um, and and so, is that going to be a fiscal consolidation, or do you think they're really still doing fiscal stimulus? What's your thoughts on this consumption tax, and is it a problem? You're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, uh, is the consumption tax going to go up or not? You know, that was, um, you know, part of the election. Um, And Prime Minister Abe is in favor uh, of increasing the consumption tax. But in terms of the impact on the economy, you've got to remember, we are talking about October 2019. 
So it's not in the next six months. It's not next year. It is in October 2019 that Japan's consumption tax is going to go from the current 8% to 10%. So that's a long way away and certainly is not going to cause any problems for the expansion that we've got going on at this particular point in time. In fact, Prime Minister Abe is very likely to announce a supplementary fiscal spending package of around half a percent of GDP that was also part of the election platform. And he's not going to build bridges to nowhere. This is not about infrastructure spending, but this is about putting uh, money into the Japanese people's pockets. Specifically, they're going to make education free across the board. Plus, there's going to be an increased allowance to take care of your elderly parents or of your elderly grandparents. And so, you know, fiscal policy in Japan is remaining stimulus. If you put this in economic terms, Jeremy, um, the fiscal deficit right now is running at around three, three and a half percent of GDP with that added, added fiscal stimulus. Over the next 12 months, the fiscal deficit is likely to be running at around 4% of GDP. Yeah, and so now you've got this this mandate where you have, they're still doing, they're still deficits, and you have the Bank of Japan who's still essentially buying every bond the government's issuing, um, yet you've had this, you know, I, I would say a perplexingly or perplexingly strong currency in some ways. Um, what's your view on the yen itself as a result of both the deficit, the Bank of Japan, and then do you see the Bank of Japan tapering their purchases? I mean, what's the, what's the story in the in sort of combination of these monetary and fiscal policies together? I think that, uh, you know, Japan's experiment with this new, um, you know, fiscal and monetary linkage. I mean, for all intents and purposes here in Japan, there is no difference between money and fiscal policy anymore. The Treasury issues around 40 trillion yen and the Bank of Japan buys about 80 trillion yen. And actually today, the Bank of Japan owns about half of the entire fiscal deficit. I mean, this is something that you don't see in normal economies. You, in fact, in history, only observe this sort of debt monetization only during times of war. And I think what it means, Jeremy, is that the Japanese yen is likely to be a structurally weak currency. And particularly if over the next, you know, uh, three or four months, the Federal Reserve does get more confident in raising interest rates. And, you know, I think the interest rate differential between Japan and the United States, that interest rate differential widening out, allowing more carry trades, funding yourself in yen, investing in short-term U.S. treasuries, that carry trade, I think, is going to push the dollar higher, is going to push the Japanese yen weaker, I expect before the end of the year, we're going to be back at 120, 125. Interesting. You know, we I have these sort of existential thoughts about, all right, so the Bank of Japan is basically buying all the bonds, um, and one day they might just say, well, you know, no longer does the Japanese government need this debt, we just wipe it all out. And so is that day a positive day for their currency or a negative day, given that all of a sudden they now have, you know, a more sustainable debt burden, but now they just printed all this yen? And so one of these really fascinating questions, because it seems like that's the path that we're on. 
Yeah, it's interesting, though, when you actually think about this. You know, of course, we always, you know, like to think in terms of radical solutions. But, you know, the more practical solution is that you just sit and wait it out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the average duration of the bonds held by the Bank of Japan is about eight years. So, you know, you just wait long enough, you know, and, you know, the the, the natural roll off, you know, is uh, is basically going to take care of the issue. Now, again, I I just want to be very clear here. You know, I think that you've got in Japan the increasing burden of entitlements, whether it's Social Security, whether it is in particular healthcare expenditure because of the aging of society. On top of that now, you're going to have increased claims for defense spending because of the security situation here in Asia-Pacific. So, unfortunately... You know, fiscal consolidation is not going to be part of the agenda. In fact, quite the opposite. I think that expenditure needs are going to be rising from here on. So debt monetization is the path that Japan is now boxed into. Yeah, no, you just brought up an interesting point on the defense spending. Um, now, you know, when you think about what's going on in, in that world, you've, you've, you've obviously had the threats and you've actually had some direct missiles flying over. Um, and Abe is sort of more nationalistic. He's more aggressive on terms of defending Japan. How, what's your read on how much of that was an issue in this election? Are, are the people behind him is sort of changing the Constitution, something that, uh, you know, get, gets a lot of disgust and, and sort of supposedly backlash against that, but he won with the landslide. So what's, what's your general read on that? It's it's very interesting, Jeremy, because, I mean, as you know, I've been here in Tokyo for the last, uh, you know, 32 years, and I never imagined that I would have to worry about a shooting war. And, I mean, the reality is, and uh, unfortunately this is not funny, but, uh, you know, the North Korean missiles are just about seven minutes away from hitting, you know, a potential target, uh, you know, in Tokyo. And, uh, you know, as we know, the technology from North Korea seems to be getting better and better. Um, And as a result of that, you know, the risk, um, you know, and and the the Japanese people's awareness and real worry about, you know, a potential conflict has definitely supported Prime Minister Abe. And, uh, you know, they want a stable hand. I mean, this is a government, um, you know, that has been stable, that has been pro-business and has actually done a good job at managing the country's affairs. And from that perspective, I think that, yes, you know, the growing uncertainty from a security perspective in Asia-Pacific has definitely empowered, has definitely endorsed uh, Prime Minister Abe and his more patriotic, um, you know, ambitions here in the country. And that does mean that, yes, defense spending is going to be going up, and it does mean that, yes, you know, the constitutional reform is likely to be uh, actually enacted over the next uh, 12 to 15 months. Hmm. So when you think about the the challenge that he had from the up-and-coming party, um, you know, I know as you were going into the election, you were thinking that just having a new challenger would, would actually put some competition for Abe. He'd have to refocus on sort of policies to promote growth and get back to his sort of is just agenda of actually focusing on the economy. Any thoughts on the, you know, the competition from the outside party here and what that's going to mean for him going forward? Yeah, very, very much so. I am, you know, uh, you know, quite optimistic, quite encouraged, you know, by the reorganization of the opposition parties in Japan, um, you know, because, you know, it is true 
that structural policies, you know, whether that is reform of the banking system, whether that is, you know, deregulation and allowing special economic zones, uh, you know, there, Prime Minister Abe, over the last 12 months, has not really done a lot. I mean, it's what, what people call the third era structural reform. You know, there's been a little bit of complacency. And the fact that uh, now you've got the governor of Tokyo, which is by far the most important economic region of Japan. Uh, Tokyo accounts for about 40% of Japan's GDP. And Governor Koike now, you know, is part of the parliamentary opposition with her new party. And they're going to hold Abe much more accountable on those policies of deregulation of private sector empowerment. And it's particularly the focus on these special economic zones, allowing the Tokyo government to actually enact labor laws or entrepreneurship laws that empower new entrepreneurs in Japan. That's where Prime Minister Abe is not going to be allowed to fall into complacency. So I actually think that the dialogue on economic debate is actually going to intensify in a good way that is uh, positive for investors. Now, one of the other issues was, was I think, this year for this election was, was nuclear power. Is that still a confrontational issue in Japan? And, and Governor Koike was um, opposed to the nuclear power, but Abe is, is sort of for re- restarting some of the reactors, and they're sort of slowly restarting some of the reactors, but generally they've, they've mostly been shut. Any commentary on that, that issue? It's, it's very interesting. I mean, on the political stage, um, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, um, definitely, you know, the opinion polls, you know, day in, day out confirm after Fukushima, the Japanese people still remain very wary of new of, uh, you know, nuclear power. Now, today, um, less than 2% of the supply of power uh, comes from nuclear. And remember, before the Fukushima disaster, that was almost 25%. You know, so there's a, the, the vast majority of reactors remains idle. And for all intents and purposes, a real aggressive restart of nuclear reactors is unlikely to be happening. So that means that Japan's investment into LNG, um, you know, energy sources, as well as into alternative energy sources, is going to continue to be, you know, a good investment policy in Japan. Hmm. Now, yes, but one of the, if you think about going going to just the big picture from, we're going, we talked a lot about the politics, you think Abe's got the supermajority, he's going to focus on, uh, he's going to refocus on some of the economic agenda items, but he's got this power in place and it's sort of stable government. That's one of the, the sort of part of the investment thesis. Japan's breaking out to these 20-year highs, uh, something you haven't seen in your 30 years there. We're getting to levels in the Nikkei that you haven't seen <laughs> since, uh, what, 25 years ago almost. Um, so what one of the, you know, sort of positive things on Japan that I've, I've often heard you talk about is how, you know, Japan is rich in technology, rich in IP, uh, in two areas that are getting a lot of focus today. I think just generally in technology are both healthcare advances and then robotics and automation. You've got some of the leading companies in Japan making investments all around the world uh, in technology and paying prices that people are sort of questioning. But um, what what do you see as, as sort of that bullish case on Japan beyond um, you know the politics side and the pol- political stability? How much is technology you know and, and Japan's role for that a, a key part of it? I think it's very, very important because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, you can call it technology, but I would 
prefer to use sort of intellectual property. You know, what is, you know, and because, you know, technology is not just about, you know, blockchain technology or it's not just about the Internet, but it's also about actually improving, and you know, the quality and the performance of, for example, a car tire. I mean, even when you move to, you know, electric cars or self-driven cars, you know, uh, if you're the best tire company in the world, if you can develop a tire that reduces the uh, efficiency of the car by 10%, that's huge. And in fact, one of the Japanese tire companies has just done that. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, paint companies, I mean, this sounds incredibly dull, I know that, but Japanese paint companies continue to improve. You may have seen there's this company that has developed a paint that effectively becomes like a solar cell. Um, you've got an, another paint company that has developed a coat of paint for ships that improves the energy efficiency of, of ships by about 12%. You know, so this sort of richness of the intellectual property base from very basic material technologies all the way up to, um, you know, high-tech, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, regenerative medicine technology or robotics technology. Japan is incredibly rich, and that allows for Japan to remain competitive. Sure. And valuation-wise, um, how do you think about, you know, now the markets are, are making these highs? Um, any any commentary on just where valuations are, where earnings are, and, and parts of the market that you are focused on? Yeah, this this is a bit of a puzzle, um, you know, in the sense of that, uh, you know, the earnings uh, visibility is very good. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, EPS, if you look at earnings per share for listed companies, at the peak of the bubble economy in the late 1980s, when the Nikkei was at 40,000, uh, you know, you had an EPS of around 40. Now you've got an EPS of 106, but the Nikkei is still, you know, barely at uh, 21,000. You know, so it's, 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 it's quite interesting. You've had this enormous multiple compression. And as you know, Jeremy, Japan is trading at a discount. Uh, particularly to the United States of America. Wall Street's trading, what, on around uh, 20 multiple. Uh, you know, Japan is trading on, you know, about a 15 and a half to 16 multiple. And it's very rare that you see Japan actually trading to a discount. And I expect that, you know, with this political stability, um, you know, it should become clear that the growth momentum in Japan is going to be maintained Policy is not going to be tightened prematurely, and as a result of that, I expect that multiples can actually expand in Japan, so I'm very, very bullish on the Japanese equity market. Yeah, and I, I look at a few different baskets. We have a, uh, a global multinationals from Japan index that's focused on you know dividend pairs there, 13 and a half times earnings, sort of forward and backwards looking there. You look at Japan small cap companies, 15 times earnings, which is you know, compared to say the you know the U.S. small caps, which are definitely more than double that valuation, um, you definitely see you know some attractive attractive numbers there. Um, but it, then you know the question does come back to, you know, on on the large caps, is it just tied to global growth cycles? Are they overly yeah. sensitive to the car industry? Or, and you know, what about their ties to China? Because you say you know their revenue is really U.S. and China are probably the two main drivers. Would you say for the global multinationals? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you find that, you know, basically a quarter of Japan's earnings come from the United States, either through exports or through uh, production in the United States. And then another 11% come from the People's Republic of China, right? So, I mean, it's very clear, you know, where Japan is positioned. It is a gearing, um, you know, into the global economy, which, which is fine. But the important thing is, and this is where particularly I think the case for small caps in Japan remains very strong. Small caps are much more domestic. That's where their earnings are coming from. And the domestic growth momentum is actually accelerating very nicely. You look at the consumer data, you look at the housing data. And now, Jeremy, what's very exciting, you're starting to get a little bit of evidence of onshoring. So you've got companies like Canon Corporation, companies like the big cosmetics maker Shiseido. For the first time in 40 years, they just announced that they are going to build new factories in Japan. Mm -hmm. And that means that the investment expenditure cycle actually gets a shot in the arm, a positive uh, uh, inflection, which obviously is good, not just for the cyclical momentum of the economy, but you would assume that, you know, private business investment expenditure by multinationals beginning to pick up, that that should also help to boost the potential growth rate of the country. Very good. And so where are they, do, do they disclose where they are building those plants from? Are they moving them from somewhere else? Or would they have, do you think they, there's a certain region where they would have been bringing them? Are they, is it U.S.? Is it it's Asia? A, it, it's very interesting. It's a net ad. Right. Um, so you've got the car industry, you've got Toyota, Nissan, Honda, you know, they want to be close to the customer, you know, and the customer is in the People's Republic of China. The customer is obviously in the United States. You know, the customer is to some extent in the Middle East and in Latin America. So the car industry is not going to add capacity back in Japan just because, you know, this Japan is not a high growth market, um, you know, for the car industry. However, if you're in the cosmetics business, you don't need to be so close to your customer. You want to focus on the quality, you know, and you want to focus on the branding. And as a result of that, you know, you add, you add, back, you, you add new capacity actually here in Japan because, you know, your transportation costs are less of an issue. And, you know, the brand value that you can extract and the cost efficiency that you can extract by being close to your R&D center and to your branding center actually is very high. Very good. Uh, so we've had a pretty broad-reaching conversation. Any things that we didn't cover that you think we should have focused on so far? Jeremy, I think there's one additional uh, you know, point that is interesting, and this is, is specifically for the Japanese asset markets. And, and you are very aware of this. The Japanese asset market, you know, the equity market, used to be, used to be sort of driven by global investors only. You know, Japan got in favor, you know, when it was risk on, then Japan went out of favor when it was risk off. Um, you know, what is interesting now, you are beginning to see domestic savers, you know, whether it is retail investors, whether it is domestic pension money, actually beginning to invest in the Japanese equity market. And this is very, very important. So the dynamics, the positioning in the Japanese market 
is actually improving with not global money, but domestic money increasingly becoming the driving force. And of course, the growing share buybacks dynamics that we're getting with corporate Japan, you know, exercising greater capital stewardship, that is an additional factor. So you've got local buying, the market is much, much healthier on very healthy valuations with a stable government. I think that that's a recipe for performance. Very good. Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Trees Japan office. Thanks for joining us, staying up late uh, post-election for us. You've been listening to our Behind the Markets podcast. It was a special edition talking with Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Trees Japan office. Next part of our conversation, we talked with Brad Bechtel, who is a currency strategist at Jefferies. Uh, thanks for listening to our Behind the Markets podcast. Welcome to our special edition of our Behind the Markets podcast. Uh, this is Jeremy Schwartz. We're going to be talking with Brad Bechtel of Jefferies. He is a currency strategist there. I just got to meet Brad last week, seeing his views on how he looks at currencies. I think he's going to have a lot of interesting things to say. Brad, welcome to our program. Thank you very much for having me. Maybe you could talk through, before we get into some specific views of currencies, maybe talk a little bit about yourself, your role at Jefferies, and sort of how you got there, how you started looking at the currency markets. Sure. I uh, started my career in the financial world in the mid-'90s at Goldman Sachs, Uh, worked through several different trading desks at the time, mostly in the fixed-income space. I found myself in the currency space somewhere in the late-'90s and started out as a salesperson there. Uh, left Goldman in 2009 after several years on the on the currency sales desk. Founded uh, or helped found uh, a firm that was specializing in FX agency brokerage. And at that firm, I had several different roles, as you would in a startup: uh, sales, trading, and strategy. All kind of f- fell under my cap, and uh, that's when I really started to hone my my strategy skills in terms of. Uh, uh, publishing my thoughts and and you know throughout my career I've always been interacting with clients and sharing ideas and sharing uh, thoughts on markets but uh, really started to hone uh, the strategy side uh, while I was at Pharos and uh, joined Jeffries about three years ago um, and uh, here at Jeffries uh, sort of a similar role in that I do uh, market making as well as uh, client coverage and in addition to that uh, strategy as well as you mentioned. Uh, so always talking to clients, uh, talking to others in our firm and around the street about what's going on in the world of currencies, um, and uh, just trying to, you know, we never have the answers to the puzzle, but uh, trying to get all the pieces somewhat correct is, is key as well. Great. Um, now, in, in terms of what distinguishes the, the trading platforms you do at Jefferies versus some of the others, maybe just a, a quick few seconds on how you think the, the value-added services at Jefferies bringing. We talked about you know a lot of the market makers in, in currencies and the, the visibility you're getting into different accounts. Maybe talk a little bit about just the, the visibility you bring to, to the buy side and, and from, from that sell-side perspective. Absolutely. I, the, the key with uh, FX, especially the way it functions uh, you know, currently, and that's really been a development over the last probably three to five years, is we've seen a huge amount of electronification of our market uh, following along the lines of what we've seen in equities. Um, but in FX, it's different because we're, we're, we're not a centralized market where everything is OTC. Uh, we're very fragmented. The market microstructure is extremely fragmented in our space and it's increasingly electronified. So you have a bit of a machine war going on in terms of uh, you know, accessing liquidity and executing your trades. So we at Jefferies have decided to tackle that head on. And 
we've developed a product which we find, uh, which we, we hope will, the, the buy side will find very interesting. And uh, basically what we're doing is uh, providing the edge that typically a sell-side institution might enjoy in terms of market making and liquidity, uh, and we're providing that to the buy side. So effectively giving them the same tools uh, that a sell-side firm might have, but on the buy side. Um, and that's through a, a trading platform, which we, which we deploy. Uh, we also provide access uh, through, through connections that people might want to have electronically as well. Um, but it's really kind of taking uh, the, the accessing of liquidity, that next step, and, and kind of turning the market a little bit on its head, allow the client for the first time to earn spread on, on their FX transactions rather than paying spread. Uh, and it's really a function of the fact that you know, ac- uh, liquidity in our market is so electronic, it's, it's really a machine war. And you really have to understand what's happening in all of the liquidity pools in terms of supply-demand imbalance, in terms of who's interacting in that liquidity. And the only way to really do that is through, uh, through electronic uh, algorithmic trading strategies. And that's what we're deploying to the buy side. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, it was interesting hearing what the uh, the type of visibility and how you're aggregating different order books and, and things like that to, to present that to people. I think that's very interesting. Um, maybe let's sort of talk a lot. I mean, the dollar's been one of the key stories the last three to four years, um, and it's a lot of things have, have revolved around the movements in the dollar. Maybe you could sort of talk high level. Um, you know, this year we've had a very weak dollar starting to rebound just a little bit here in the last month or so, but maybe you could give your high level view what's happening in the dollar, what are the factors that have caused it to be a strong last few years and then super weak this year and any anything looking forward sure absolutely I and mean, basically the story in the dollar uh, i have a funny chart which i like to look at which kind of shows you the trump approval ratings versus the dollar uh, and over the last year and change that's actually been tracking quite well so uh, clearly we had a big run-up in the dollar uh, post-trump election and uh, it quickly turned somewhere in the january time frame and has been nothing but uh, more or less straight down ever since and that goes directly in line with Trump's approval rating. The story in the dollar over the last year or since Trump took office is really what is what kind of programs is Trump going to put forward? Tax reform, fiscal uh, repatriation, you know, anything along those lines that's going to be stimulative to the economy because uh, that would directly translate into a potential faster pace of Fed hikes, which would then translate into a stronger dollar. So it's really, you know, the dollar really became a political trade over the last year, which is unusual for FX markets. We don't typically, traders never really like to trade politics because there's so much uncertainty and no one really has an edge. Uh, So it became quite of a challenging time uh, for trading the dollar. And what we've seen recently is is a mild rebounding of that, as you alluded to, right? Part of that is a function of the Fed. Uh, they put December squarely back on the table. Uh, there was some doubt around whether or not they would have the ability to hike again in December. They've taken us to probably about 80% probability of that happening. That's lifted the dollar off the lows. In addition to that, obviously, we're getting some momentum on the on the tax reform side as well. And, uh, and that's also helping push the last uh, 24 hours or so. Um, so it's really going to, for me, the dollar going forward is is a function of what the Fed's doing and what the political agenda is looking like. To the extent the risk there is, you know, Fed stays on course as it is currently, just sort of, you know, three, two or three or four hikes a year, probably three, let's call it. That would be sort of benign, but definitely helps the dollar. It doesn't hurt it, that's for sure. But to the extent 
Trump starts making headway on taxes, which already seems to be happening, we get some big passage, we get some more fiscal stimulus, deregulation. Those are all very positive for the economy in the U.S., and we have a very tight labor market already. Uh, so to the extent we start seeing wage gains pick up and inflation uh, get, get, get even more perky than, than we have seen recently, then the dollar could actually start to really ramp up again. Uh, as the market starts to reprice the Fed in a, in a completely different direction. Uh, so I'm watching, again, politics, unfortunately, yep. uh, but as always, keeping an eye on the Fed as well. So it sounds like the two primary forces that we're, tr- we're following is the politics effect, the Fed effect. Um, and so a lot of, of rates decisions come around interest rate differentials and and just that. Is there any other currency factors, as you say, from a top line um, besides just the, just the raw momentum that sort of feeds on itself sometimes? Any other things that you look at from a currency factor that we should be thinking about for the dollar? Absolutely. I mean, to me, the big thing is is how the rates markets are trading. And the real curve is, is very important, in my view, in terms of the dollar and also in terms of the broader uh, FX landscape. So uh, what I mean by that is obviously the two-year note's been backing up in terms of yield. That's been helping the dollar uh, recover off the lows. But you're seeing the tens, although they have backed up a, a little bit, uh, aren't backing up nearly as aggressively, which means the yield curve is flattening in the U.S., that, to me, provides a little bit of a, of a headwind uh, for the dollar going forward. Uh, the correlation between the yield curve and the dollar is quite strong. Um, uh, so I'd keep an eye on, on, on the shape of the, of the U.S. curve. Uh, to the extent we see a, a big steepening in the curve, that should be very dollar positive. Uh, real yields are very important to the dollar, of course, as well. Uh, they've actually been performing relatively well for in dollar, you know, for the dollar as a positive for the dollar. Uh, if you look at things like uh, euro or EU versus U.S. real yield differentials, uh, it actually argues for dollar strength or euro lower, uh, for example. And that's the case in 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 U.S. real yields versus a lot of different countries out there. You know, one of the things that is also interesting currently is you know carry FX. And emerging market FX, both of which have had nice rallies this year as the dollar was weakening, are starting to look a little shaky as well. So as the the Bloomberg dollar index, the BBDXY, recovers off the lows, you're seeing the carry trades and the emerging market trades in FX start to weaken a little bit. So I'm keeping an eye on that dynamic as well. And I think that also ties into our rate story that we were just talking about with the yield curve. Um, so it's, it's all very much tied together. Uh, the catalyst to me is, you know, sort of ground zero is going to be what the, the, the dynamic in the U.S. yield curve and in rates generally. Very good. Now, what, now in Japan, which we just had the uh, the election over the weekend, Abe was able to stay, you know, sort of still in power. Um, any view the yen is one of the big currencies? Um, any any thoughts on the yen versus the dollar in particular? Absolutely. You know, the the word I heard this morning on the way in was landslide. So it seems to be a pretty decisive victory. Uh, for Abe, there was a lot of concern, uh, even you know, several months ago, that he he potentially was going to lose. Uh, there was a lot of nervousness kind of going into the the election. It, it calmed definitely last week as it seemed Abe was going to win. Uh, now that he has won and with a clear major uh, mandate uh, going forward, uh, it, it kind of gives you that rest assured. We're going to keep the three arrow policy in place. BOJ is going to remain as stimulative as possible. Maybe there's even more coming down the pipeline. We probably have a retail 
sales hike there, which which we were able to tolerate uh, previous uh, versions of in the past. So uh, I'm not too worried about that. I think this is a bit of a green light for dollar-yen higher or the continuation of yen weakness. We've rallied right back to 114, which to me on the charts is an interesting level. Uh, we've stalled there a couple of times in the last several months. Uh, we're a little bit overextended in terms of relative strength index, so the RSIs are a little bit overextended. Maybe we pull back a little bit and then we take a run higher from here. Uh, but the the election in Japan was, you know, clear mandate. Dollar should be uh, should be green light. Uh, that is one of my favorite trades. Uh, Dollar to me is the Fed trade. That is the one you want to look at in terms of exhibiting, uh, you know, topside in, in, in terms of the U.S. as well as the Japan story. Nikkei is obviously breaking higher and, and, and just completely ripping right now. Uh, Japanese yields are, are a little bit elevated in the front end. Obviously, they're targeted on the, on the back end. But inflation in Japan is, is slowly picking up. And if you, if you really look at it, there is some signs that it's actually starting to happen a little bit. Uh, so to the extent they remain very stimulative and, in, and inflation is starting to grind higher, Dollar-yen should be green light, especially against the backdrop of a Fed and, uh, and, and what's happening on the tax side in the U.S. So you know, I'm very positive on dollar-yen and, uh, and think we could you know, potentially see something in the 118s as we get into the first quarter of next year um, and, and then continue on from there. Very good. Yeah, I mean, it seems from the, the different central banks, you've got talk of the euro group tapering. Um, I don't know if you have a, a view on when that's going to happen. We'll get, get into that. But you had the Bank of Japan, who's basically saying we're going to cap our tenure at zero. So in, in some ways, they've outsourced their policy to the Fed that they need, you know, they need U.S. rates higher to get the yen weak, if that's you know part of their goals to drive inflation. Um, any Any commentary around that? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, that's exactly what they're doing. Um, in if you look at the landscape of the G7 central banks, uh, they by far are, are nowhere near where the rest of the G7 central banks are slowly going, which is removal of accommodation. Uh, so the U.S. is obviously the, the leader on that charge. Uh, the ECB is making signs that they're going to reduce tapering. Obviously, we should hear, hear about that or, or reduce um, bond buying. We should hear about that this week potentially. Uh, the UK is even talking about a hike, and in the, in the context of Brexit, uh, you know, even a few months ago, people would have said you're crazy if you suggested that. Uh, Bank of Canada took back a couple of hikes. Um, you know, so central banks, generally speaking, are moving towards the removal of accommodation. Japan is nowhere close to thinking along those lines, uh, and is likely likely to remain exactly where they are on that front, uh, and and potentially even push push further on that front if they needed to. But that's that's again, you know, the, the dollar yen has a great tailwind in that context because, you know, Japan's set up uh, and the U.S. is set up to just continue that dynamic uh, based upon our relative monetary policies and fiscal policies. Very good. So we talked a little bit about one of your highest conviction trades being dollar, yen higher, sort of yen weaker. Any other sort of high conviction ideas you want to highlight for our listeners? Yeah, I would take a look at some of the, you know, what's interesting in the FX world is uh, we have a lot of correlation to what goes on in the commodity space. And, uh, you know, clearly commodities have been a relatively interesting story uh, the past year or so with the big oil move, big move in base metals. Now, now we're seeing a big recovery in base metals. Uh, so keeping an eye on Dollar Canada, they're 
firmly in the crosshairs of, of all these different uh, kind of crosswinds that are out there, right? So the oil dynamic, they have a housing market, which is, has, has been just on fire. Uh, the Bank of Canada uh, was very dovish and flipped to hawkish, removed two of the emergency rate cuts they had put in place, and now they have a meeting this week. So the inflation uh, print last week was just okay, and the retail sales print was soft, so Dollar Canada actually traded higher, CAD weaker. Uh, Bank of Canada this week is probably going to just be status quo. I know the market in Canada is pretty excited about more rate hikes to come. I don't think they're going to actually deliver on that because of the housing market there uh, and the fact that they they have uh, huge leverage to, to kind of rate rises in their housing market. So Dollar Canada, uh, which had traded quite a bit lower over the last several months, is just starting to look like it's breaking back higher again. Um, I did think we would... Uh, wait a little bit before it broke higher, but it seems to be happening in real time now, and, and I, I do think dollar cat's likely to trade higher from here, so uh, I do like that one higher. Um, and then in terms of other conviction trades out there, Aussie dollar is one that should benefit from iron ore, uh, so take a look at iron ore relative to Aussie, and, and to the extent you see that continue to rebound, that should be Aussie dollar positive uh, combined with higher two-year yields locally. And, uh, and just a, a, a nice recovery in, in global exports and, and global trade should be beneficial to the Aussie dollar as well. Very good, Brad. This has been a, a great conversation. Thanks for joining us on our special edition of Behind the Markets podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. You will be back next week with another discussion with, with Professor Andrew Lowe of MIT. Thank you. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.